Morning, everybody. So good to be with you uh, today. Hey, I want to begin by giving yet another massive shout out to the many volunteers that served yesterday for our second demo day. Can we throw that picture up there, please? Check this out. We had, this is just the morning crew that came through and they did an incredible, yeah, absolutely. A lot of sweat equity going on at this church. So uh, they did an amazing job. I think total over the last uh, couple Saturdays, probably at least five full dumpsters worth of, of stuff that we hauled out. If you're new to the church, we've been embarking on this new initiative and, and it's just about to start. So what that involves is a, an expanded lobby area to give us more space there and then going all the way down the hallway, all the way where our offices used to be and our current kids space, all that's getting blown out. We're getting new bathrooms put in and we're getting new bathrooms put in and... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and all that space is gonna become kid zone, kid zone, safe, secure. By the way, last Sunday, by the grace of God, we had more kids here, 212, than we've ever had before outside of Christmas and Easter. So by the grace of God, again, answering our prayers, expanding our borders, and thank you for partnering with us in that, and again, special thanks to those of you uh, who helped out uh, yesterday. So if you got your Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter nine. Super excited for the text today. Uh, it's a pivotal text, a very unique text. Not only does Matthew share the heart of Jesus, but he also presents the purpose of Jesus in an extraordinary way. It's a super unique chapter. This chapter also marks a turn in the ministry of Jesus. He begins to select those who will be his personal followers. Starts with 12 men. One of them, well, there's a reason why we don't name our kids Judas. <laughs> One of them doesn't do so well. He gets replaced. These 12 men will go on to become absolute world changers. Within 350 years, Christianity will be the religion of the Roman Empire. It starts with this fledgling movement. Jesus' hand selects these individuals. Matthew chapter nine marks that turning point. Up until this point, Matthew has done a remarkable job of explaining who Jesus is. He was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. Hundreds of years worth of Old Testament prophecy pointing forward to a forthcoming Messiah. Incredibly detailed, fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Matthew is absolutely convinced that. This is why he starts his biography by walking you through the genealogy of Jesus, he gives you the ancestral tree, leading back to Abraham, because the patriarch said that the Messiah would come through the line of Abraham. That's why, that's why Matthew begins by telling you, hey, let's talk about his genealogy. That fits, that's important for you to know. It's an identifying characteristic. If we don't have that right, then all else fails. So let's start there. And then, and then, and then he, he, uh, he talks about this, um, this man named John the Baptist who comes on the scene. Turns out to be Jesus' cousin, crazy dude. Comes walking out of the desert, full on retro gear. He's wearing like camel hair. He's like, you know, he's eating super clean. He's eating bugs, you know. He's like Mr. Green Eater, right? And people are like, oh, I see. You look like an Old Testament prophet. And John's like, exactly. Well, then what's your message, prophet? Same thing that the Old Testament prophet said. Repent. Repent. Jesus is now on the scene. John the Baptist points him and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. Follow him, everybody. Follow him, he's the one. 
Jesus gets baptized, he goes out into the wilderness, he faces temptation, comes back and he lights the world on fire with the greatest sermon ever preached, Sermon on the Mount. Kingdom of God ethic as opposed to an earthly kingdom ethic. Takes everything and turns it upside down. Paradoxical, first shall be last, last shall be first. Every, everybody's a little disoriented and she's like, yes, that's right. I came to disorient you in the best possible way. Everything you've thought about, why you're here, who God is, who the Messiah is. I'm about to shatter all of that and to set everybody straight. Matthew 9, there is this turning point. Now, because Matthew was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, there's a, there is one primary goal that the Messiah has. What is it? It is to forgive people of their sins. Now, that's important. I need to say that again. One primary role of the Messiah is that he will forgive, bring forgiveness of sins, okay? Now, Jesus did a lot of things while he was on the earth, a lot of things. In fact, one of the gospel writers was like, hey, if we were to record everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to fill them all. I mean, the guy was super active in what he did. So why do these writers contain these stories, these narratives, these scenes from the life of Jesus? They're very selective. You don't write about them. You don't read about all of them, just a few of them. So it's very important for you to understand why this and not that. So Matthew chapter nine, I began by saying, reveals not just the heart of Jesus, but the purpose for which he came. And you're gonna see that in, in, in the most unique way. All right, so here's what's happening. Um, Jesus knows that the world needs him. In order to spread that message, he's going to give humanity the honor, privilege, and dignity of partnering with him. That's when he selects these individuals. That's passed on to us now, as you'll see in a moment. But when he wants to reach people, he doesn't do it solo. He gathers others to himself and sends them out. Now, in Matthew chapter nine, Jesus is very busy doing ministry. And the chapter starts, according to Matthew, with a scene in the life of Jesus where, where this paralytic is brought before him. And it's not so much what Jesus does because Jesus is gonna heal him and that's what everybody expects. But it's what Jesus says to him before he heals him that has everybody lit up. The common people are blown away. They've, they haven't, they've heard stories about Jesus and his reputation has preceded him, but when they actually observe a healing, they're like, whoa, okay, this guy has authority. But then there's this other group that observes him, the religious people, and they don't have the same reaction. In fact, it's very different. They actually end up wanting to kill him. Verse two, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, it's interesting, it doesn't say he saw the paralytic's man, talking about the paralytic and his friends. He's got some good friends. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, literally, be encouraged. My son, your sins are forgiven. Hmm. Is that really the way to give encouragement to this guy? His sins are forgiven, he's thinking, great, but what about my legs? And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, and Jesus knows what he's doing, but they said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. To blaspheme is to speak um, 
in irreverent ways about God. Blasphemer. Why would they say that? I'll show you in a minute. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? You would think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, because anybody can just say that. So that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Why does Matthew include this account with Jesus' specific words about forgiving this man of his sins before he gives him the ability to walk? Why? So, the paralytic is brought in. He and his friends seem to have great faith. Jesus acknowledges it. And everybody is waiting for this healing to occur. And Jesus doesn't give it right away. Instead, he says, be encouraged. And the paralytic must be thinking, I'm ready for it. I'm ready to be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven. Seems like a little bit of a letdown for this guy. Okay, my sins are forgiven, but uh, what about like the ability to move on my own? Your sins are forgiven. Now, the response from the scribes, these are the religious leaders of the day, very upset. The scribes, the Pharisees, they made up the religious ruling class. They had tremendous authority, and they essentially governed religious life for the Jews. You wanted to get to God, you got to go through the Pharisees and the scribes. So when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, they respond in a very different way. They respond by saying, that is so irreverent. And they accuse him of being a blasphemer. Why? The Jews believe there is only one person who could forgive sins. And who is that? It's not no human. It's God himself. Only God has the ability to forgive sins. And so the thought of a human coming on the scene and saying, your sins are forgiven. Well, what is he doing? He's making himself out to be God. He's claiming the authority that belongs to God alone. And the whole thing is kind of interesting if you think about it, right? Because Jesus is, is forgiving the man's sins, but has Jesus himself been personally offended by it? So it kind of goes like this. Let's say you have two guys here up on the stage, Bill and Bob. They're having a, a strong disagreement. In fact, it's, it's, it's getting heated. They're screaming at each other. Finally, Bill, he winds up, hauls off, and delivers a right hook right to Bob's face. Now I'm standing up here and I see what's happening and, and as Bob gets hit in the face, I, I say to Bill, Bill, it's okay, I forgive you. Bob's looking at me going, Jason, what are you talking about? Why would you forgive him? He didn't offend you, he offended me. He didn't punch you, he punched me. Why would you offer him forgive? Why, you have nothing to forgive him for. So do you see what Jesus is doing? He looks at the man and says, hey, your sins are forgiven. The scribes immediately say, no, 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 only God can forgive. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, you believe that only God can forgive? You're right about that, but you're wrong about who you think I am because you see, God and I share the same deity. We share the same nature. And the authority that is God's, 
I also have. Because you see, ultimately, when you offend somebody, when you do wrong, when you sin, you know who ultimately that is, a, that is an offense against? God. How so? It's his rules. This is his game. He created it. So yes, you offend someone else, but ultimately, God is the one who told you that was an offense in the first place, and so you have offended him. So when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, what he's saying is, yes, you've offended me also, because God and I share the same nature. This is why the religious leaders look at him and go, don't you dare. Don't you dare make that association. And Jesus is like, no, I will. So let me ask you something now. You're gonna ask, what evidence do I have to back this up? Well, which is easier? Your sins are forgiven or walk? Well, it's easier for any, everyone to say your sins are forgiven. So let me just lay down some street cred for you, okay? You want some evidence that I have the power to forgive sins? Here it comes. Get up. Get your stuff. Stand up. You're walking home. And the man does. And everybody around him is kind of like, what do we do with this? Clearly he has supernatural power over nature. Perhaps he does have the ability to forgive sins. Why does Matthew choose to record this event? He knows exactly what he's doing. He wants to convince you of what he's already convinced of, and that is Jesus is the one who forgives you of your sins. He has that kind of power and authority. So the religious people get really upset about this, right? And Jesus is like, hey, listen, it is what it is. Look at what I do in case you doubt. So what Matthew does next is he personally uh, talks about how Jesus called him. Verse nine, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So of all the things Matthew could choose to include about his own personal narrative, his own story after being called by Jesus, what would he say? What are the things that he's gonna include? Look at this, verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, this is the posture of someone who's getting ready to dine with people that he's friends with. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners. Those two groups are often associated with each other. You might know why. Rome had, had their, their, uh, their tax collection down. It was actually pretty smart the way they did it. They figured out how many people lived in a certain area and then they would put the collection of ta those taxes out to bid, and it, like an auction. So if you wanna collect taxes in this province, we know how many people live there, we know what the taxes should be. Well, we're gonna put this out to bid. We're not gonna do it ourselves. We're gonna hire people who will go out and collect those taxes. But here's the deal. You're gonna have to pay first. You're gonna have to pay for the right to have that piece of paper that says you can knock, knock it on there collecting taxes. But you're gonna have to write us a check first. And then if you collect taxes, your taxes, great, great. If you get more, well, then that's up to you. So that's why tax collectors were notorious for being thieves, cheats. Well, how much do I owe? How much do you have? See, they've already written their check to Rome, so whatever they get on top of what they write, that's pure profit for them. That's why tax collectors didn't have many friends. Tax collectors and sinners, they go, hand in hand. And so here Jesus is, he's reclining. He's got this posture of friendship with them. They're all reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, again, the religious leaders, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like, why does your, why does your rabbi associate with such lowly, nefarious people? 
But when Jesus heard it, he said, well, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He doesn't sugarcoat the fact that these people, they need him. And he, Jesus, he calls them sick. They're far from God. So go and learn what this means. And then he speaks right to them. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is a scathing indictment on them because these religious people had no mercy. They were all about sacrifice. Jesus says, you tithe on top of your tithe. That's the sacrifice you make. And yet you don't know God. You think you can earn your way to God, but you are merciless. You look at tax collectors and sinners, you wanna have nothing to do with them. Oh, but you go to church every Sunday. You've got big chunks of your Bible memorized but you lack mercy and compassion. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, isn't that, and you know what he's saying? What he's saying is, there's a sense that he's saying, I, I, I didn't come to, to call the self-righteous because they think they can get to God on their own. But it's the people who understand that they're sinners separated from God and they can't earn their way to God. Those are the people that understand. So Jesus spent a lot of time with people who are far from God. For example, sex workers, thieves, people who are demon-possessed. Okay, so right there, you have those three categories. They, they, they were the friends of Jesus right there. These are the most marginalized people, some of the most marginalized people on the planet at that time. And yet Jesus is, is experiencing hospitality and friendship with them. And then, he, and then he gets accused of doing wrong, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So here's a really good question. If Jesus showed up at your house and you know, he knocks on your door, and you're like, it's dinner time, it's like six o'clock, and you're like, no, who is, you know, all right, so he keeps knocking, keeps knocking. You open your door, and it's Jesus. You're like, you're gonna stop whatever you're doing, and you're gonna put out your best for him. I have no doubt. But what if Jesus rolls up, and he's got all of his nefarious friends with him? How does that land with you? Would they feel welcomed in your home? See, every church has to ask itself this question, right? Is this, is this the right question? Would the friends of Jesus feel welcome here? They better. They should. See, you don't want to become pharisaical, right? Where there's this distance between us and the people that Jesus was closest to. For I came not to call righteous, but sinners. So Matthew's building up to something here. He's going to reveal at the end of, of this chapter. So let me summarize what happens next. Uh, verses 14 through 17, John the Baptist, his disciples look at the disciples of Jesus and they make a curious observation. They're like, wait a minute, these guys aren't fasting. You should be fasting. And so they go to Jesus and they say, hey Jesus, what's up with your guys? They're not fasting. And Jesus says, okay, I know where you're coming from, so here's my answer to your question. If you think you can earn God's favor and pleasure by fasting, like if you think that's the way to gain righteousness before God, you don't understand. Because the way you attain righteousness before God is by believing in me. And I'm here now, I'm in your midst. So fasting is important and Jesus fasted, but what's more important is to be in the presence of Jesus and to understand who he is and to accept him for who he is as the one who can forgive your sins. That's how you attain the righteousness of God, okay? So it's not so much about fasting in the way that you think. It's not bad, you can do it, it's great. Jesus did it. But it's not about gaining salvation or finding God's favor, it's, it's, it's about receiving Jesus. Okay? So as he's having this conversation, this ruler runs up to Jesus and he says, I need your help. My daughter has just died. My daughter has just died. Please, please come to my house. Help, can you help me? He's begging. 
So Jesus turns and starts making his way there. On his way, this woman approaches. She's been sick for 12 years and she just touches. She touches the garment of Jesus. Jesus senses her presence, turns and says, your faith has made you well. He arrives at the ruler's house, grabs his daughter by the hand. She lives. He leaves the house. Two blind men start screaming at him. Jesus, give us our sight, give us our sight. He heals them. And then a demon-possessed man is brought before him and Jesus heals him. Now, I've had some busy days doing ministry. <laughs> and I just kind of sense the this little sweat beads forming on Jesus' head. You know, it's like, can I just have lunch? You know, can you just get a 15-minute work break here? It's one thing after that. Jesus was constantly with people who are hurting and in need of help and just the suffering in, in, the, in the worst ways and, sp and spending the kind of time with them that met them at their greatest need. And I think Matthew wants you to know this was an everyday occurrence for him because he writes this in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. He healed them all, any and every kind. He healed them all. So when Jesus rolled into town, his, his, the first thing he did was he went into the synagogue. And the, you know, the Hebrew word for synagogue is shul, shul. Sounds a lot like the English word school and for good reason because the synagogue was a place of learning. So he would go to the synagogue. He would open up the Old Testament, read from the, that's what the, the Bible of Jesus' day is what you have in your hand, it's the Old Testament. So he would open up the scroll of a prophet, he would begin reading. And what we learn is that he would read those prophecies concerning a forthcoming Messiah, and then he would put a little bow on it at the end by saying, hey, you know who, you know who the prophet's talking about? Me, talking about me, okay? And everybody's like, oh, really? Okay, prove it, cool. Let's go hit the city. So he rolls into the city and he's like, Blind or healed. People touch his garment, they're healed. Ruler's daughter is raised to life. What's next? What's that? Another demon possession, another healing. Well, how about this? Your sins are forgiven. Pump the brakes. What? Yeah, this is the real message now. Your sins are forgiven. See, I'm revealing something about who I am. And the miracles are the evidence for why you should believe. I think there's another reason why Jesus did these miracles though. And I think it's really important. I think it gets lost on us sometimes. I think Jesus also performed these miracles to show the people the compassionate heart of God toward humanity. And it was a very different picture of God than the religious leaders, what the religious leaders gave. And they needed that. Because it was as if they had to do things in order to make God happy. And then maybe, maybe if they did enough, God... God would ease their suffering. Instead, Jesus comes on the scene and he just begins easing the suffering. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repent. It's not the other way around. It doesn't say repent first and then God will be kind to you. And so you see Jesus performing these acts and the compassionate heart of God comes through. Uh, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. This is a super interesting word, Greek word, because they were harassed and helpless. It's a, way, it's a good way to describe a lot of people today. They were like sheep without a shepherd. So this word, Greek word for compassion, it literally describes one's guts. And it's that, that's that emotion that you feel 
after receiving news or information that you just don't want to get. You have cancer. You have a loved one and they're far from God and day by day they're struggling and you're like, oh, you feel that, you know, you feel that. You feel like you've just been punched in the stomach. That's the way Jesus feels when he looks out over the sea of humanity and they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so this is what motivated Jesus to do what he did. But I think, I think Jesus is, uh, he's, he's talking to us here. Now, we're not doing the kinds of miracles Jesus does on a daily basis, but we can express the compassion and kindness that he expressed, and we can do that on a daily basis. And when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, talking about those kingdom of heaven principles coming to the earth, he didn't just talk about it, he actually brought it, a taste of God's kingdom to this earth. And I believe that when we do this, we, um, we express the kind of love that we were created to express. So I'll give you an example. No doubt you have all heard about the shooting in Nashville at Covenant School. How do you, you know, it's like what words can be used to describe that? Tragic, I'll tell you. One of the most easily verifiable truths of the Bible is that the planet is filled with sinners. What you don't know is that the parents of the children attending that school pulled together and they paid for the shooter's funeral. And they were asked, why would you do that? And their response was, because Jesus tells us to love even our enemies. You you didn't hear about that, did you? You don't think that has an impact on the school, the community, perhaps even those who might be anti-Christian. So Jesus taught, he healed, and he called others to enter into this ministry of spreading God's compassion uh, to those in need. And then it's interesting because he ends in this way. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of work. It's like there's fruit that is ready to fall off the trees. The problem is, it's those doggone laborers. We have a labor shortage. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his into his harvest. See, this verse comes on the heels of, we just read Jesus having compassion on people. And they need to hear the message. See, it's interesting because this, um, this harvest language, I think it represents the Old Testament concept of judgment, uh, quite, quite frankly. The message is God is coming back. God is coming to judge. And that's a, that's a problem for us because we're on the receiving end of that judgment. 
but in his gracious, his mercy, he's given us a way out through Jesus. So this text has changed the way I pray. And when I first looked at it several years ago, I used to pray like this, and it's not wrong, but it's, it's different for me now. This is incomplete. I used to pray, God, will you soften this person's heart? You know, I've got people that I love and care about, and they're far from God. And it's like, God, will you just soften their hearts? And that's right, that's right, that's a good prayer. Or if they were stubborn, I might pray something like, God, would you just bring them to their knees, you know, bring them to that low point so that they've got nowhere to look but up? Okay. But the prayer now is this, God, will you please send someone to talk to them? (laughs) You're right. Will you please send someone to talk to them? So in Mark chapter five, Jesus has this interaction with a man. He's demon possessed. Jesus heals him. And the guy's like, all in, all in. I want to be one of your followers, rabbi. I want to follow you. And Jesus says, no, I've got something else for you. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him, changed his life. Jesus, you've changed my life. I'm, I'm, I'm all in with you. Wherever you go, I'm going. Jesus says, no, actually, you're gonna go home. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Mercy over sacrifice. So the man went away, began to tell in the Decapolis, which this is sort of like, you know, it's the center, it's the hub of activity, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. So, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a friend and neighbor, and we've lived next door to each other now for many years, and <clears throat> just really, really far from God, unchurched, I think in large part because he was born and raised in England, moved to the States when he was older, never stepped foot in a church, and he did only one time, and that's because God orchestrated a, an event in his life where he had something precious taken away. I had the privilege of entering into that space with him and attempting to minister him, to him. But we're friends. We're actually good friends. And, uh, and he's, he's always thrown, he loves to throw house parties. So I go to his house parties. And, you know, I think I've told you his friends refer to me very affectionately as Rev. Rev, I'm Rev. <laughs> Short for Reverend, Rev. And one time I'm at one of his house parties and one of his friends approached, two, the two of them, the married couple, and they said, are you, are you the pastor that lives, lives by? And I said, yeah, yeah. And they said, we've been praying for you. We've been praying for you. Because we're coworkers. And we've just been thinking, how in the world does the gospel get to our friend? And when we heard about you, we started praying. We prayed for you. We've been praying for you for a while that you would essentially go and tell. And the more I pray, God, will you send somebody, anybody, send somebody to be your hands and your feet, but mostly your voice. You know what God does to me? Very often he says, you bet, it's you. It's you, Jason, go and tell. Oh, Jason, you're the answer to your own prayer. Go and tell, go and tell. So I think it's quite beautiful that Jesus would give us the honor, the privilege and dignity to carry this rescue mission toward humanity. So how about you? When Jesus looks out over Jerusalem, he approaches the city and before entering, his heart just breaks and he weeps. 
And I would pray that we would be the kind of church that the friends of Jesus would feel welcomed at, and more so, that we would be the ones who go and tell. If I could, and I think I can, I have to check with the city. Sometimes it's better to ask for permission rather than, or forgiveness rather than permission. But put a little sign out here on the sidewalk. As you leave, it says, you are entering the mission field. You are entering the mission field. So I'm asking you to bow your heads and close your eyes because there's somebody in your life that the Spirit of God is gonna bring to your mind and you are the answer to that prayer. I've got loved ones that perhaps are in your sphere of influence. I need you to go and tell. You perhaps have loved ones that are in my sphere of influence. Trust me, I'm gonna go and tell. And let's, let's see what God does. Now let me tell you also that when the dust settles around here and we get more of our space back, we're gonna launch two massive initiatives in the fall. Both of them surround evangelism and discipleship because this is why we're here. We are here to make disciples. You can't make, disciple, make a disciple unless you first tell them. So who is it for you, Father? These are the moments when the scriptures come alive because your spirit works with your word and you bring to our hearts and minds what's next for us. What does this mean for us? And Lord, we're so grateful for the very clear purpose that you've given each one of us. So Lord, together, that's our prayer. We pray that you would raise up laborers. Us. Me. To enter into that harvest that is so ripe because in the end, we want to take as many people to heaven with us as possible. And that only happens by lifting Jesus up. As he said, you lift me up, I'm going to draw people to myself. That's what we do. All, all in the end, for your glory we pray. We ask it in the one whose name has authority and power. And that name is Jesus Christ. And God's people said, <laughs>